We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. We're actually going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning, but I just want to read the middle portion of this chapter this morning as we get started, verses 13 through 20. This is the core of this chapter. Really, it's the core of the gospel and the core of our faith. And so join me as I read God's word this morning. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ." Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use this text to speak to us this morning. Meet us where we're at. Lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. We pray these things in Jesus' sufficient name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, what keeps a church alive and growing? Somebody can answer me. What keeps a church alive and growing? Jesus. I knew somebody would say that. I was hoping you would say my sermons, but I'm glad you went with the right answer. It is, of course, Jesus. We, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that answer, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. If you're ever in doubt, just always go with Jesus. You'll always be right. And I think most of us who have been around the church, we, we know the, the answer to that question, what keeps the church alive and growing? It's, it's Jesus. We cognitively know this, and we can repeat that. We can recite that. But if we're honest with ourselves... How often do we act like Jesus needs our help to keep the church alive and growing? If we're honest with ourselves and and as we assess culture and assess churches, especially when things are going bad in a church, we start to kind of drift from that knowledge, from that truth that we have that Jesus is the one true rock, the foundation, the one who keeps the church alive and growing, and we tend to drift, and it's so easy for us. It's easy for me as a pastor and in all of my pastoral circles, and it's easy for the people who attend a church and, and want to see the church survive and to thrive to start thinking that they need culturally savvy leaders, or they need more engaging sermons and songs, or more effective outreach strategies, or, or the money of contented members. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations and have had people say, well, you have to make sure that the people in your church with money, stay content so that they give it because without that, your church isn't going to be able to pay the bills and it's going to fold, right? Political freedom. How many times do we think that that we need the ability to worship freely in order for the church to stay alive and growing? Or people-pleasing programs. I mean, as churches struggle, we often think, what what can we do? What does our community need? And how can we create programs to meet their needs? And, And that'll help the church to come back to life. Or some churches are tempted to change their doctrinal stances on things or misinterpret scripture or, or, or ignore scripture to try and be more progressive to a progressive and ever-changing and evolving culture. Now, I'm not saying some of these 
things are, I'm not saying all these things are bad and that there's never a time and a place to think through what it means to be culturally savvy or to have engaging sermons and songs or effective outreach strategies. Certainly there's a time and a place to think about these things. But I am here this morning to assure us as we look at Matthew chapter 16 that we as Christians need to be very wary of building the church on the false foundation of our efforts. And oh, church, how it's so easy for us to get sidetracked. It's so easy for us to, to try and build the church and to advance the kingdom of God. I mean, any true Christ follower, you want to see the kingdom of God advance. That's a great, noble desire. It's a, it's a God-given desire, but we need to be very careful that we don't rely on or put our hope in man-made efforts, our efforts to help Jesus build his church and advance his kingdom through the world. So this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to look at the entire chapter, we're going to see three false foundations that we attempt to build the church on, and three firm foundations that the church is built on. And there's, there's more in scripture to this, but this is what we see in Matthew chapter 16. There's three primary false foundations that you and I all of us, I believe, are tempted to try and build the church on, to advance the gospel on things other than Jesus. And there's three firm foundations or foundation stones, if you think about it. There's, there's a foundation and it takes different blocks, different stones to build it. What are those? This text reveals three false ones and three sure ones to us. In context here, Jesus is walking with his disciples. He's teaching them. He's, he's discipling them. They are learners. They are followers of Jesus. They're learning from him what the kingdom of heaven is like and how the kingdom of heaven collides with and clashes with the kingdom of earth. And so we see him confronting different people throughout the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, we see him being confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This isn't the first time this will happen. It's not the first, last time that it will happen in Jesus' ministry. But Matthew 16 shows us this incredible collision course between the false foundations that mankind tends to want to build the church on or advance the kingdom of God on, and then the firm foundation, what we need to keep in mind. This chapter is incredibly important to the Christian life. And to you, if you're going to attend a church or be a part of a church, give your life to a church, give your money to the church, and, and really invest in this thing, it's essential that you and I understand this chapter and what Jesus has set out. And so let's look at it today, starting with the three false foundations. The first one is found in verses 1 through 4. And a false foundation, the first one that we see is the desire for signs and wonders, or trusting in signs and wonders. So pick it up in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are two groups of religious leaders who are, they're two groups of Jewish religious leaders who do not get along. But they found common ground here to get along in attacking Jesus. It's honestly, it's like the equivalent of a staunch Republican and a committed um, uh, Democrat coming together and agreeing on something. Can you imagine? Could you imagine that? That's what's happening here. These two people who are incredibly opposed to each other. They, they both are following Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they have different laws, they have different rules, they have different systems, different ways about going about it. And here they come together, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees think Republican and Democrat come to test Jesus. They're, they're united on this project, and this project is to test Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say... 
it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So then he left them and departed. And so what's happening here is these two groups of religious leaders, of Jewish religious leaders, are coming together to test Jesus. And they're, 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 they're suspicious of him. Jesus, is, he has this following. These people are coming to Jesus, following him. There's talk and there's discussion about, is this the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? The promised Messiah of the Israelites and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the religious leaders. And they're like, well, he can't be the promised Messiah if we didn't have a hand in anointing him. If he didn't grow up in our schools, if he didn't grow up in our traditions, if he's not underneath our tutelage, if he's not one of our disciples, there's no way he could be the Messiah because we're the religious leaders. Anything good that happens for the kingdom of God, anything good that happens to advance God's rule and reign will come through us. And so they're suspicious of Jesus. They're questioning him. So they get together and they, 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 they ask him to show them a sign. Now, it's just an interesting thing that they would ask him to show, that they would ask him to show them a sign from heaven because he's been doing signs throughout the book of Matthew, right? I mean, we see this over and over again. He heals a leper. He, he raises somebody from the dead. He's doing all of these incredible works, Signs and wonders. Jesus' ministry is full of them. But Jesus' ministry is full of them because he has compassion on people in need. He's not doing them to prove a point. And, and here, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him and they want him to, they want him to prove his point. Say, so if you're Messiah, if you're all-powerful, if you are God in flesh, prove it. Show us something. you got to give us something supernatural. you got to wow us, Jesus. And he's just not playing their game. And he, and he says that you know how to interpret the skies, right? We even know this phrase. Some of us have probably heard this phrase, pink sky at night, sailors, delight. Pink sky in the morning, sailors, warning, right? That's a cent- it comes from here. This is what Jesus is saying. You, you know how to interpret the, the skies and the seas and the weather. You know that from experience, you know that this means that. And he's saying, but, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the time. You don't know how to interpret what's going on around you spiritually. You're, you're students of the law. You're studying the law. You're religious leaders, but, but you, you have eyes, like Jesus has said earlier, but you never perceive. You have ears, but you never hear. Your hearts are hard and far from God. And so Jesus warns them about this, and, and he says, I'm not going to give you a sign except for the sign of Jonah. This was, he said this phrase again in Matthew chapter 10, and essentially what he's saying is that it's about his death and resurrection, that when Jesus is killed, he will be buried for three days in a tomb in a similar fashion, how Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish, and, and he was essentially, it was like he was dead in the bottom of the ocean for three days, and then the fish spit Jonah back out, and he went to Nineveh and proclaimed the gospel, and Nineveh repented, and there was this amazing revival. Jesus is saying the same thing. That's the sign that you'll get. I'll be crucified. I'll be killed. I'll be thrown in a tomb. It'll be locked away. I'll be gone. But then I will come back, and this great revival will follow. And so he's saying, that's your sign. Now, Jesus continues to do signs and miracles throughout his ministry, a brief ministry. We're getting, actually getting close to the end here, close to his death on the cross. We're getting close to Passion Week, to Holy Week. 
but in Jesus will we'll do a few more signs, a few more miracles, a few more wonders, but he's telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm not going to play your game. And so church, we need to keep this in mind, that oftentimes when we're dealing with things, we, 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 we pray and we ask God to prove himself to us. And there's churches around that, that, that use signs and wonders as proof that God exists. And sometimes Jesus uses that to reveal himself and to convince people that he is God. But here's the warning for us churches to be careful of building our church or trying to advance the kingdom by expecting God to do signs and wonders in and through us. Now, I'm not of the opinion that signs and wonders have ceased. I've talked to too many people around the world who have seen miraculous signs and wonders. And God uses these things to reveal himself. I remember being at a Caribou Coffee. I always use Caribou Coffee because that's where I worked for many years and learned a lot. And I remember being with one of my coworkers who was having back issues and, and I just felt the Lord telling me to pray for her, pray for healing. And so I asked her and we had been talking about this for a while and I placed my hand on her back and I prayed for her back and I'm like, come on God, prove to her that you're real and heal her back. And her back issues persisted. And I wrestled with, is that my lack of faith? You know, if I have more faith, would he have healed it? And we all wrestle with those things, right? I think this is a good reminder to us that miraculous signs, miraculous healing, God chooses to do things out of our understanding, out of our control in times and places and seasons. And certain churches, certain cultures, certain countries, certain groups of people may experience it more often than others. And praise the Lord, we should, we should want it, we should aspire to it. The scriptures actually tell us to aspire to some of these things, but we need to keep in mind that it's a false foundation. That, that the advancement of God's gospel, that the growth of Jesus' church is not dependent on signs and wonders. The second false foundation in this text is wrapped up into the entire context of Matthew, and it's really, it's tied around the religious teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The second false foundation is man-made rules, traditions, and teaching. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, Jesus had called out the Pharisees for this, for this false teaching, for being more worried about their tradition that they elevate and put on the same level as God's commandment. And Jesus is getting at the same thing here in Matthew chapter 16. Let's look at verses 5 through 12. When the disciples reach the other side, so remember, the Pharisees come, verse, verse 1, to test Jesus. He's not going to give in to that. He's not going to give them a sign or a wonder to prove his, his divinity to them. And then they depart, the end of verse 4. Verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. I love that little detail. They're just humans, right? Like how many times you go on a trip and you forget to pack something, some kind of provision? Probably not because we have Siri to remind us, but you get the point. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What a, what a funny thing, like they're without bread and they're hungry and Jesus is just taking it to a spiritual level. He, he's using their momentary circumstance of lacking bread to, to teach them something deeper. He says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he had talked about the leaven of the Pharisees earlier on in Matthew and they began discussing it among themselves. It's like Jesus said something, and they're like, what? What's he talking about? Why is he always talking to us about these weird things? What does he mean? We brought, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. 
Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they saw and perceive, and the disciples, they often saw and failed to perceive. Jesus is patient with them. He's walking with them. He's working with them. He's growing them up into Christ-likeness. But this is a reminder for us, disciples of Jesus, that oftentimes we see and we don't perceive. And Jesus continues, if we've placed our faith in him, if, if we've stepped out of the boat, if we're following him, if we've said, I want to make you king and lord, there's this progressive growth in that. Jesus says, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? A couple weeks ago, we looked at that story. Verse 10, or the seven loaves of the 4,000. We looked at that a couple weeks ago and how many baskets you gathered. Remember, Jesus does this miraculous feeding to the crowds with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then the second story with seven loaves and a few fish, and he multiplies it to the masses. So Jesus is saying, you're worried about this small little detail of your life, having no bread, but, but don't you remember? Don't you remember what I've done? Don't you remember who I am? I've already multiplied bread. Don't fret about your bread. I've got you. Verse 11. And then it's, he's like playing with their physical circumstance. He's not playing with. He's, he's encouraging and reminding their physical circumstance. But then he also simultaneously is pushing it deeper into the spiritual. In verse 11, he says, How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And so he's speaking about bread, right? He's saying, you forgot bread. Don't worry about bread. I can multiply bread. Don't worry about your daily circumstances. Don't fret about this. I've got it. He's speaking about bread, but then he says, but I also am not speaking about bread. I'm pushing it deeper. I did not speak about bread. Beware, and then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's using this imagery of bread and leaven to say that the, the man-made rules, traditions, and teachings of the Pharisees that we saw him talk about in Matthew 15 that he brings up here again in Matthew chapter 16, they're often this false foundation for our faith. That, that over time, we build these certain rules, we build these certain traditions, we build these certain ways of doing things, and, and we trust them to advance the gospel and to preserve the church or to grow the church. We think that our mode of baptism or dedication or confession or communion or our way of singing, or our way of preaching, or these certain moralistic standards that we set, that, that the gospel is, is dependent on those things to propel itself forward. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing. In, in Matthew chapter 15, they're calling out Jesus and his disciples for not washing their hands, for not meeting their traditions. And here Jesus is saying, beware of the teachings of men that elevate their own tradition, their own rules, their own kind of church cultural stuff to the status of God's, status of God's commands. And, and much of the church today is built on similar things. Is it not? I mean, we're so, church, we're so easily swayed and tempted to trust our rules, our traditions, and our own teachings. I, mean, I spend a lot of time talking with other pastors and assessing church culture and talking about church things, and it, we're all guilty of this. Every denomination, every movement, every expression of church, we, we tend to think that the way that we do it is how it ought to be done, and other people ought to do it that way, and other people ought to believe these things, and other people ought to 
organize their church in these ways, and this is the way that Jesus honors, and this is the way that, that the gospel will expand and grow. And we're tempted to believe that our preaching style or music style, like it or not, you're tempted to think that what it is when you like it is right, or what it used to be when you used to like it is right. We're tempted to think that signs and wonders would help. We're, we're tempted to think that, that programs, whether it's something that we used to do that had effect or something that other churches are currently doing that have effect, well, if only we would do that, God would do something through our church. If only we could take this program and it's working for that church or, or that type of music or that type of preacher or whatever it may be, this type of community, it's working for them and so, so maybe it'll work for us. It's this false foundation really built on man-made rules, traditions, and teaching. And Jesus is warning us, beware. Beware of the teaching of religious leaders who make it seem as though they have the answer and their answer will, will advance God's kingdom through your church and it will ensure church Growth. It's a second false foundation. The third false foundation is admittedly less explicit in this text, but it's very explicit throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And it's probably going to hit some of you the wrong way at first, but bear with me. The third false foundation, and we're so tempted to give into this, is to believe that political is to, to trust political power that seeks to ensure religious freedom and enforce biblical ethics. The, the third false foundation that's it, it's in this text, but it's more explicit throughout the Gospels, and really, this is what the, the first century church and all the tension in the book of Matthew is revolving around. That we as people are tempted to believe that political power. That, that seek, we're tempted to build our lives on this, on a political power that seeks to ensure our religious freedom and enforce our biblical ethics. That's what's happening here with this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even the disciples. I mean, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the, the biblical Israel, they, they want a political power the reason they missed the Messiah, the reason that they saw and didn't perceive is because their perception was that the Messiah would be this political ruler who would, who would defeat the Romans and would set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem and rule from the top down, a king, a visible king, a king sitting on his throne and ruling from the top down. And the, he's put the Romans in their place and he's put all these other pagan nations in their place and now Yahweh, the one true God, is acknowledged by all. And they're, they're wanting this political power so that they could have their religious freedoms and enforce their biblical ethics. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 12. I mean, that's why the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not see Jesus for who he was. That's why they didn't accept Jesus for who he was. That was, that was their issue. He's not fitting our mold. He's not leading the way that we would want him to lead. He's not doing the things that we thought he would do or that he should do. And it wasn't just them. It was also the disciples. Look at verse 21 through 23. So after the confession, we'll come back to Peter's confession in just a minute. But after that, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Didn't he just call Peter the rock? Now he's saying, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And see, see Peter's mindset, too, was, no, Jesus, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. The, the kingdom of God isn't one of suffering and death. It's one of prominence and prestige and power. You're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to sit on your throne, and you're going to cast out the Romans, and you're going to clean up the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the religious muck that they've made of our faith. Jesus, you need to be anointed king, and you need to clean this thing up, and you need to bring peace to the world here and now. You're not going to go suffer. I mean, the reason that Peter responded that way, no, far be it from you, Lord, in verse 22. This shall never happen to you is because he had his mind set on Jesus becoming a political power that would ensure his religious freedom and enforce his biblical ethics. Now, those of you who have, have spent time giving your life to ensuring this here in America, thank you. It's not a bad thing at all to have politics which ensure religious freedom and help to enforce biblical ethics. We believe that biblical ethics are good for the world. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we proclaim the gospel. That's why we love people with the gospel and, and call people to surrender their lives to King Jesus and, and conform their lives to biblical ethics because it actually leads to life's flourishing. But for our biblical ethics to grow and for our religious for, for our faith to expand, we don't need religious freedom. We don't need political powers that ensure our religious freedom and enforce our biblical ethics. And this is proven throughout the history of the world. Countries where, where Christianity is banned. I mean, if you do a study on the country of China, in 1949, when Maltang Moon came to power and established the People's Republic of China, there were about 2 million Christians on record, they think, in China at that time, and he banned Christianity. He, he tore down all the churches and really all religion. He was anti-religion, but Christianity was a part of this. At that time, 1949, it's, it's um, estimated there were about 2 million Christians in China. They're estimating now that there's 70 million Christians in China or more, and the number is growing. Christianity still currently isn't, it's not allowed politically in China. It, they don't have political powers that ensure their religious freedom and enforce biblical ethics, anything but. And it's, it's believed that Christianity is the fastest growing religion in China, and that it's growing faster in China than anywhere else in the world. And so, the warning here and the reminder here is for us to just not get caught up in thinking that, that our church, that the kingdom of God, that, that biblical ethics, that what we know to be right and true and good for the world is dependent on our politics. And so often, I mean, I'm a student of social media. Funny thing to be a student of, right? I actually took it off my phone this week because I'm sick of it, but... But if you're not even a student of social media, if you've ever been on it, you know that there's this, this tension in our culture, in our life, and, and so much of it arises because I, I think some of us have been duped to believe that we're dependent on political powers to give us our religious freedoms and to enforce our biblical ethics, and that's just not true. To those of you politically minded, feel free to engage politics. To those of you who have fought for our religious freedom, thank you. It's a gift. We praise God for it. But we do so, we engage politics with compassion and godliness 
and remembering that it's non-essential. Some of you are so mad at that. Politics are non-essential to the growth of the gospel. The history of the world proves that. And our call as Christians is to be disciples, followers of Jesus. And, and so just keep it in its proper place. Hold it with an open hand. We're heading into a divisive political season. Church family, engage as you feel led. Engage with your convictions, but do it with compassion. Do it with godliness. Do it knowing that the growth of Jesus' kingdom, that his church is not dependent on our politics. Amen? Regardless of what happens in America, Jesus' church will be just fine. You will be just fine. You may lose your life, and then you'll have a glorious eternal life with no suffering, no tears, no pain. Amen? So, so engage, but do it not as a foundation. It's not foundational. It's a fa false foundation. Don't be duped. Don't be sucked in. All right, now that we took care of that, the three false foundations in this text, let's look at the foundation, the real foundation, the firm foundation, the sure foundation. Firstly, it's Jesus Christ. Surprise, right? Thanks for the, you, you, you reminded me of that in the beginning when I said what, what's the church dependent on for its growth and its survival? Jesus. Always the right answer. Keep going with Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You may get sick of hearing it. You may think it's unoriginal, but it's essential. Look at verse 18. So this, in the middle of all of this going on with the Pharisees and the Sadducees testing Jesus, with, with them wanting him to rise up as a political figure, with them being tempted to trust in signs, with them being tempted to trust in their own religion, with them being tempted to trust in politics, in the middle of this, Jesus has this interchange, this, this verbal exchange with Peter. He says, who do people say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, listen to the possessiveness here of Jesus' next statement, I will build whose church? Who will build whose church? Who's his, who will build whose church? Jesus will build Jesus' church. He, this is his. It's his bride. Scripture over and over again talks about the church as the bride of Christ. Husbands, how jealous are you for your bride? Hopefully. Maybe over the years that's waned, but th think back to those early years. Think back to when you were getting married. Like, that's, that's your bride. This is your marriage. Nobody comes against it. That's Jesus' heart for the church. These are my people. These are my bride. These are my blood-bought children. I will build my church. Jesus is the foundation, and it's Jesus is the Christ. It's not, it's not Jesus' first name, Christ, last name. Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament who would come to establish God's kingdom, to, as Jesus said in the first part of Matthew, to bring, to bring the kingdom of heaven to bear here on earth. And so Jesus is giving us this first taste of what eternal glory will look like. We're waiting for another day when he would return or call us, us home. But Jesus' existence, Jesus' birth, Jesus' ministry, it kicks into motion the church. 
The, the word church here is ecclesia. It's only used twice in Matthew, and it means the called out ones, called out of the world and called to gather in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, I will build my church. There's a reason why throughout the scriptures he's referred to as the foundation, as the rock, as the cornerstone, as the head, as the good shepherd. The church isn't dependent on you having a a, a pastor who is a good shepherd. The pastors ought to be good shepherds as they're conformed to Jesus. The church isn't dependent on you having spectacular music or significant programs. And again, none of that is bad. We should care about those things. We should think about those things. But I think we need to come back to the basics, the firm foundation. Is our firm foundation Jesus? He's the head of the church. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock. I will build my church. And so we need to be careful that we don't put ourselves in the driver's seat. And that's what Peter was doing, right? Lord, this will never happen. And, and in that, when, when Peter puts himself in the driver's seat of Jesus' kingdom, he compares him to Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And, and Peter went on to have a great ministry and proclaim a great gospel. And I guarantee you we'll see him in heaven, we'll be with him. Because Jesus called him Satan doesn't mean he was condemned. It means he's comparing him right now. Your, your, your influence isn't of the kingdom of God, it's of the kingdom of world. And he says as much. Look at verse 23. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, the things of God, it, it's the, the ability or it's the, the humility to remember that this is Jesus' church and he will build his church. He is jealous for his church. So don't put yourself in his place and think that the church is dependent on your money or your activity or your service or whatever it may be that we tend to put our hope in. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Secondly, the second foundation in this passage is our verbal confession of Jesus as Christ. And so the first one is, is Jesus' church. He's the primary foundation stone. I will build my church. The second one is as we confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the anointed one, that he is the promised one. So Jesus is asking Peter who people say that he is. There's all this confusion about me. And so Peter engaged, let's pick it up in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is a, a, a Gentile city at the, around Mount Hermon. This is an incredibly pagan place filled with Old Testament pagan worship and, and um, turning their back on God and current New Testament pagan worship and, and turning their back on God. And all these different false gods had temples and idols set up in Caesarea Philippi. And so they're in this very spiritually dark place when this is happening. And Jesus asked his disciples, Jesus, Peter here is speaking for the disciples. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, there's all this, who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? We're not sure. He's doing miracles. Who is he? Verse 15, he turns it personal. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, and and I believe that Simon's speaking for the disciples. He's making his own personal confession, but he's oftentimes throughout the New Testament the spokesman for the disciples. He says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, and blessed it really means favored one. Why is Peter favored? 
Well, he says, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah, that means Simon, son of Jonah. It means you're, it, it, Jesus is acknowledging his human, his fleshly existence. Blessed are you, favored are you, O man. Blessed are you, favored are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood, your humanity, you're the son of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's why you're blessed. The ability to make the confession that Jesus is the Christ is the supernatural gift that we get from God. And it causes us to be blessed, to be favored, to be welcomed into the family, to join the kingdom. And it's upon this confession that Jesus is building his church. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Peter means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a highly debated verse. I mean, the Catholic Church believes that Peter was the first pope, and so when Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, there's this apostolic authority passed down through Peter. He's the first pope, and so the Catholic Church is the only true church that carries this authority. Other people say that, that the, the rock that Jesus is building his church on is Peter's confession, and you'll notice that's Kind of where I land, based off of this statement, our verbal confession of Jesus is one of the foundations of our faith in the church. I, I think it's actually both. I think he's saying Peter means rock. I think Jesus is using a wordplay here. Peter means rock. And, and on you and the apostles, you're speaking for the apostles. On you, I'm passing on the gospel. I'm empowering you with the spirit. You will go out and you will proclaim this. And through the proclamation of the gospel, the church will be built so yes, it's on you, it's on us to carry it forward, but we don't carry it forward with our gimmicky programs, we carry it forward with calling people to confess Jesus as Lord. And so the church is built on the apostles, on the followers of Christ who proclaim the word. The church is also built on the confession, our verbal confession that Jesus is Lord. And then the church is also built literally on the rock, in Caesarea Philippi, they're, they're at the base of Mount Hermon, a rock. This, this pagan center of, of godless or pagan worship. This place of darkness. And Jesus is saying right here, and the disciples would have known this. They, they knew what was going on. They knew where they were. And Jesus says, I will build my church in the gates of hell. The Greek word there is Hades, shall not prevail against it. They, they felt as though they were standing at the gates of hell. Right here in Caesarea Philippi, you're going to build your church? The gates of Hades? This is where they worship all the false gods. This is the darkest place on earth. This is the pagan epicenter of the universe. And Jesus is saying, yes, on you, my followers, on your confession of me as Lord, I will build my church right here in the darkest of places where there is no religious freedom, where there's nobody enforcing biblical ethics. I will use you. And so our primary posture in the kingdom of God shouldn't be one of, of like, of defensiveness or, or, or trying to keep bad out. Our primary posture as Christians isn't to keep the bad influences of the world out. It's actually to remember this and to go attack it. We as Christians ought to be aggressive. One of my pastor friends says we should charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun. Ready to go. Because Jesus has promised as we trust in him, as we confess him as Lord, he will build his church 
And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then he gives authority. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Because he wasn't ready to be crucified yet. He had some more work to do. And so, church, it's Jesus that the church is built on. It's our verbal confession of Jesus that the church is built on. And then lastly, it's our daily expression of Jesus as Christ, of Jesus as Messiah. Again, verses 21 through 23, it shows us that we have to allow Jesus to lead his way, not our way. As Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Our daily expression of our confession that Jesus is the Christ is to say, your will be done, not mine. So whatever you wish, however you lead, wherever you lead me, I will go. (coughs) And this is a daily thing that we're called to do, to lay down our lives, and then Jesus gets into it the last couple of verses here. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in glory. And what I think that last part means there isn't that the second coming of Jesus will come while they're still alive. I think he's actually referring to the transfiguration, which happens in chapter 17. But the point here is that the church, one of the foundations of the church is our daily expression of Jesus as Christ. The church, the advancement of God's gospel, it's, it's essential. It's built on Jesus. Our confession of Jesus and our willingness to follow him wherever he would lead church. Not to use him to get what we would want or to use him to lead in a direction that we think best or to use him to, to try and make our lives more easy or comfortable. No, he's saying, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world? Everything. Oh, church, how I want that. Last night I was just wrestling through this with Brittany and I said, I just asked her the question, would we give up all of our freedom and our comfort if it meant that one person would spend eternity with Jesus? In my flesh, no. I want to raise my kids in a safe school, in a safe neighborhood. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy vacations. I want to live my best life now. But the gospel begs us to ask the question, what if you got all of that, but that was all you had? And you had no eternal assurance, eternal hope, eternal glory. And, 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 and what about the others? And so, church, we are built upon Jesus. Our confession of him as Christ and our daily laying down our life, picking up our cross and following him because he is worth it. Amen? It's one of the reasons why we take communion every Sunday that we gather. It's to remind us that Jesus is our foundation. And some people think it's boring or it's, you know, it's like we do it every week. It becomes routine. It becomes traditional. Guys, this is a reminder for us that Jesus is our foundation. It's not my preaching praise of the Lord. This thing would implode quickly. 
It's not the music's skill, although they have it. What a great worship band. But it's, it's Jesus, the very man who gave his life in our place on our behalf so that we could inherit eternal life and we could invite others to follow him. And so I'm going to pray. And then when you feel led and ready, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, come to the table, take the bread, which represents the bread of life, giving up his life for yours. Drink the cup, which represents Jesus' blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And do it as an act, as a daily expression of proclaiming Jesus as Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, would you empower us to live for you? And Lord, would you remind us that we stand firm on you, that we have a solid foundation in Jesus? Lord, as we gather this morning, even as we take communion, may it be a confession of our hearts that you are Christ, and may it be, may it be expression of our hands that this is true as well. Have your way in us, Lord Jesus, for your glory, for our good and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.